You're listening to Double Macchiato. I'm Rafael de Cardenas, a designer and creative director based in New York City. Double Macchiato is a platform for exploring our cultural atmosphere at large, our designed environments, and everything that circulates within them. Today I'm speaking to Alexandra Cunningham Cameron, curator of contemporary design and the Edward and Helen Hintz Secretarial Scholar at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York, and Felix Berichter, the editor of Pinup Magazine and one of the co-founders of Double Macchiato. Today is March 14th, 2020. We're in New York City, and COVID-19 hysteria has just hit Manhattan, has just taken Manhattan. So all of our work has to do with design. Alexandra and Felix, your work has to do with broadcasting design in a sense. So our first question is, what is atmosphere? What's special about atmosphere? What makes creating atmosphere desirable? Jeff Kipnis, he had this acrylic sphere, this very large acrylic sphere. He put it in front of his TV while he was playing the piano. He would like to play the piano when he got home from work every day. And he always likes the TV on. Mm -hmm. So he put this acrylic sphere in front of the TV, turns the volume off. It basically <clears throat> creates this kind of refraction and diffraction of light and colors around the room via this, this sphere. And he said that it created something like music does, right? But it was not about the piano or the music or the TV or the sphere. It was the combination of all these elements producing another sensation. Mm -hmm. He called it the affect extruder. And he, he talked about the instrumentation of the Bradbury building in LA, which is now a Noya house. The Bradbury building did not necessarily set out to be this atmospheric place, right? But through the way that it filters light into that you know, large atrium, it produces this church-like effect that transcends building lobby into something else. I mean, it occurs to me as you're talking about these examples of atmosphere that atmosphere might be something that's entirely intuitive. Like, can you construct an atmosphere if you don't have a certain sensitivity to emotion, to drama, to light, to texture? I mean, I think that Pinup is a magazine that definitely has an attitude and creates an atmosphere. You know, it pulls you in and it takes you on uh, an emotional journey, <laughs> which was a compliment. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> but as you're constructing each issue, you and also Aaron, who creates a layout that is unlike any other publication that anyone has ever seen, is this something that you think you're able to construct? Is it contrived? Or is it an impulse where you say, you know, I think we should move this like this, that derives from the collective experiences that you've shared and what you've seen and what you've lived in your life. Wow. Okay. Um, I thought this was a, a kind of a, a bantery uh, podcast. I think the... it can be. No, do no, no. But I think I, 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 I really like this. It can be. And I, I don't no, no, no. You, you don't have I'm, to answer in an academic way. But no, no, no. Yeah. But I, I think a lot about atmosphere in. And I mean, not that we're like playing like circle, circle ball <laughs> here, are. like talking but about, you know, like, I'm, you know, <laughs> when you actually create physical spaces like Raphael does, actually, and I mean, 
also you create physical spaces with with exhibitions, right? Yeah. Um, but maybe the kind of spaces that Raphael creates are a little bit more permanent. Although you always pride yourself in doing ephemeral things. I mean, I I try, right? Yeah. Like I think it's more. I think I always fight the, the the urge to be too permanent. But anyway, so what I wanted to say though is how much how much of an atmosphere is conveyed through actual experience and how much it is conveyed through an image and often a still image because I mean we kind of live in like mood board economy mm. right and so much of what we you know our I think our currency and the way we communicate is often through mood boards and saying like oh this image and increasingly also people think that the image that you present as a mood is actually exactly the image you create, but you uh, you present it to convey an atmosphere. So I, I, I always, and I think about how there used to be, now we're, we have this abundance of images that we're like being confronted with nonstop. But then I recently had this, like we looked at this beautiful book by Ezra Stoller and he photographed all the <coughs> major, or what we now consider the major architectural milestones of the 20th century, especially in the US. And these are often the only images that exist of these buildings, right? No one went through there with their iPhone and was like, oh, you know, hi, guys. Like, I want to show you my pool. Like, that didn't exist. And Julius Friedman as well. J Shulman, sorry. Julius Shulman as well. A lot of the documentation that existed of these projects were through these really specific, mm -hmm. hyper-curated lens. And I think when we talk about atmosphere, especially like, you know, how many have actually been to the Salk Institute in San Diego, right? Which is also another pillar of like the modernist canon or late modernist canon. Or how many just rave and dream about it because they've seen that amazing image of, I think it's also Ezra Stoller actually, mm -hmm. of the, you know, the, the, the axes towards the ocean, the Pacific Ocean with the like the water in the middle. It's an Instagram ready mm -hmm. project because you always, you yeah. always get that image if you stand right in the right. Like where that, right, like right, right, right at the right. entrance gate, like right in the middle, you take that picture. You'll yeah, I'm going to make it. like an embarrassing admission. I actually also never have been to the Salk Institute. No, me neither. But I, I have. But I went through the trouble of looking at it on Google Earth the other day. You know, like the, when you do the 3D mm -hmm. view, and I was like, oh, there's actually some like really unattractive parts about it. You know, like the back, mm -hmm. the back, and how you actually get down there. And but then there's also that kind of killer <clears throat> axes of yeah. And there's a parking lot right in front of it. Yeah. All you need is a money shot to create atmosphere. Yeah, it's and it's and it's so in 2020. In, yeah, but then at the same time, your money shot always also gets compromised by like a million bad photos of people on Instagram. <laughs> I don't know. I think that the, the, I've been thinking a lot about that. Is like how how do you? I guess this is a question back to you, Raphael, because you 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 know your way of communicating your projects, whether it's to the public or to clients, is through photography most of the time. Because it's not like you're gonna send someone over to another client's house and be like. You know. I mean, some people ask that, but <laughs> but um, it, it's more common than you think. But um, but yeah, for me, I mean, like I've always only really, I wouldn't say I've only cared about the image because there are things that images can't really capture, but. But I've been most concerned with uh, with the imageability. But imageability, how something reproduces, has always been important to me. The reproduction has to be its own thing. Has, right. to, has to stand on its own two feet. It's not a copy. It's a something else, right? It's sometimes better. We Photoshop it. We control the light more. We move remove outlets. 
wires, uh, things like that. Can I answer the atmosphere question yes. in yeah. a different way? Because it occurred to me that the project that I've just been working on for a long time is an interesting example of trying to recreate atmosphere. Right. And, yeah. you know, with the Willy Ware showrooms, looking at how we might rebuild <laughs> them in a completely different environment, in a completely different time, and also as an exhibition rather than as a functional space. We've just learned like at the end of installation and finishing the exhibition that most people who were a part of building and commissioning the original showrooms expected us to fail miserably. <laughs> And that they never thought that we would be able to create something that wasn't the exact same atmosphere, but that somehow conjured an emotion or a feeling of nostalgia mm. or something that felt like an extension of the original. And, you know, in the very short period of time that people were able to come in and see the show, people were crying who had been in the original showrooms. And James Wines in particular said, I never thought you'd be able to do it. I was absolutely certain that it, it wouldn't work when we thought about putting, you know, all of these elements of the street and grayed out spaces and you know, the Carnegie Mansion. You know, there's a, a perversion to that. Um, but other than that gimmick, you know, would it have an effect on people bringing them back to a certain time? And it, it seems to some degree to have been successful. And I, I don't know how we managed to do that, which is kind of why I asked the question, you know, how can you can you construct an atmosphere without maybe in film, right? Like, well, film is only atmosphere. Exactly, right? it's, exactly. It's sort of a, a story told via atmospheric effects. But can the construction of atmosphere be so purposeful? Or is it something that's intuitive? Well, for example, it's been famously argued that Mises' Barcelona Pavilion right. was a sort of sedative. Mm that it was a mood-altering drug to change the perception of Germany to the world. I, I mean, it's probably like one of the buildings that's been written the most about, and mm -hmm. so I don't really need to get into it. But it's an interesting thing because, you know, it sort of, it was very, it was just completely different to what anything else looked like at the time. But I remember reading an article by Detlef Mertens, and he said it was barely a building. Like it had no doors, it had no, it didn't seal off space. It was just this envelope of kind of effects. And then it was demolished. And then there were only a few photographs and, and some collages left of it. And so he said the ghosted image of it was the thing that became the most romantic was most romanticized right. was this was this um this memory of it, right? Because it didn't exist. And then they, they rebuilt it in the 80s or at some point, I don't remember exactly how or when they, they rebuilt it or how that how that worked out. I actually mm. don't. I've actually never been also. <laughs> like, <laughs> Let's make a list of all the modernists. But, but in a weird way, <laughs> but I, I will say that, like, I mean, I've been to Barcelona a bunch, but I've also, I don't think I want to go. Mm. Like, right. I feel like, because I feel like. ruin it for you. I mean, I've written so many papers about it. I've written, like, you know, and I'm just like. Uh, published those. It's the provocations. 
Um, but do you think that the that the creation of atmosphere is something that's essential to success or failure in the design world? Is that why you're asking the question? Um, I don't think. I, I mean, I, I mean, you have to define success and failure first. But it's true. I mean, like you know, there there sort of it depends how you work. I mean, like there are. Let me apply some more hand sanitizer. There are, <laughs> there are, <laughs> sign of the times. Um, there are thing themes, right, which can be confused for atmosphere, and maybe they're just a more, a sort of like more neatly packaged atmosphere, uh, or something like that. Like the question of atmosphere. There's one example to me that was always sort of interesting. Like I remember being in like middle school and, and high school and like really being obsessed with Barbara Kruger. I loved Barbara Kruger. And I, I and I loved the the highly politicized uh, you know, like the font and the way things were written and the American flag and all text and kind of uh, the, the the way the texts were written. And it was really interesting to me. I really loved it. and I, I it I was drawn to it. And it was political, it was political feminist work. And I remember seeing at LACMA a show in like the early 2000s, so like 20 years after the work was produced, in a time when feminism was not cool, cool, right? It was like a different time. And the show was romantic. The same things meant something else mm. because the, the sort of the time was different, right? What, what the interests were. Um, as it's an interesting side note, I don't necessarily want to actually, but it's just an interesting thing. Sylvia Laven, she taught this class that it was like basically the window. It was like called the picture window. And it was like she basically had like, you know, anything about windows and like glass. Versus... Oh my God, she needs to be on this podcast. <clears throat> but so Sylvia she... Laven, if you're listening, you're next. <laughs> she said, you know, it's interesting. I've taught this class three times in three different places but the last time I taught it was um, in 1992 at Princeton and the readers the same uh, I structured all of my lectures the same I've given you all the same information and the interpretation has been completely different mm -hmm. she's like in 1992 at Princeton a window was a way for men to control women in Los Angeles in 2002, glass is the site of special effects. And she said that could be location, it could be lots of things, but she's like, but I didn't influence that. That was like, this is the same reader, same thing. And she said, you know, basically that's atmosphere, right? Like how someone receives something. Can I just inject that this book is so great. Like, oh, thank you, Alex, for, for making this. I'm looking at the Willie Smith Willie Ware book that accompanies the show. Alexandra, you write that Willie Smith wanted to capture the imagination of an audience that his name brand colleagues did not court. Everyone. How do you relate to Smith's drive as a curator to connect with a more general audience? It's not something that I always connected with, I would say, as a curator. For the majority of my curatorial career, or I should say my career in the design world, because it hasn't always been oriented towards curating. At some point, it was very much about editing, organizing, event planning, um, relationship building. You know, But one of the reasons that I took a position at the Smithsonian was because I wanted to speak to a general public, and I wanted to work on exhibitions and programming that was educational. 
And that also took me out of my comfort zone. You know, for, for most of my career, even in school, I'd been communicating to an audience who had already bought into the ideas that I was expressing or that I was facilitating through commissions with designers and architects. And so that, that was easy. Um, you know, and even if they didn't understand the point, um, they were somehow prepared to want to understand. And you understand very quickly within the Smithsonian system that your challenge to speak to an audience that doesn't necessarily find immediate value in what you're presenting. Um, and especially when you're thinking about younger people, teens, kids, you know, they have zero filter and zero bullshit meter. And, and in order to connect with them, especially when you're speaking about the work of a designer like Willie Smith, who did have an extremely broad and democratic project that relates so closely to what young people, I think, are intuitively doing today or how they're intuitively working today, which is multidisciplinary, collaborative. You have to construct a very different approach. You have to use language that might not be the language that you've used in the past. You had to think about creating an atmosphere that is strategic um, and captivating, but you, you also have to be straightforward and authentic, whatever that, that word means. And you kind of have to be real. You know, there's no artifice or the artifice is in service of telling a story and creating a narrative that's, that speaks to people. And, you know, with Willie Smith, um, I'm, I've started getting a lot of questions as we've had the opportunity to talk about the exhibition, about how it relates to fashion and why a design curator would take on a fashion show, why it makes sense at Cooper Hewitt. And... You know, the, the exhibition is, is not focused on fashion. You know, fashion is a tool for a designer to empower <clears throat> people in a very particular way. You know, fashion was, or garments were, because I think also the definition of fashion has changed significantly since Willie Smith was alive. You know, he came out of the garment industry. He was a garmento. Um, he was a sportswear designer. He saw clothing as a means for people to become themselves, become the versions of themselves that they wanted to be, that the elite aspirational aspects of the fashion system discouraged. And he did that through collaborations. He did that by making his clothing affordable, designing patterns when that wasn't popular for celebrity designers to put their collections directly into patterns for home sewers. He did that by producing t-shirts that had artist prints on them. He created something that was trying very hard to reach everyone. He was interested in what was happening in the suburbs. It was not a, a cool, avant-garde, downtown, New York story. Not at all. Um, and he was an intellectual. You know, he woke up every morning and listened to opera and read as much as he could and, you know, encouraged his young designers, his studio, to go out and watch art films. 
He supported as many avant-garde performances as he participated in as costume designer. He was exceptionally curious. And, and I think that this message of, you know, design should be for everyone. And how do we, how do we develop a design practice that gets you there and that fits with what you with who you are as a designer is something that is very close to the message that Cooper Hewitt is trying to relay. And so beyond fashion, the museum does not have a fashion department. There are elements of fashion and, and some garments in the collection, but you know, there isn't there isn't a dedicated department focused on collecting or exhibiting fashion. But the messaging is something that I think is essential to the project of the museum and the mis- mission of the museum. And more than anything, it's important to present Willie Smith as a as a model for that. This actually reminds me of, uh, I recently looked at uh, Telfar document again. Absolutely. Recently, <laughs> and, and you know, the tagline for Telfar is, it's not for you, it's for everyone. It's for everyone, yeah. And I think that's such an interesting message because it's like the culture moment we're living in right now is very much about, it's like hyper individuality, but also total inclusivity, right? So it's like these weird two like paradoxical concepts Mm-hmm. And you know now it's being like called out in a way, mm-hmm. but I think Willie Ware and Willie Smith did that. Mm-hmm. I got a really beautiful email from James Wines yesterday because we were emailing about the story mm-hmm. um, that we published the essay that yeah, Michael wrote about um, yeah. about the Willie Ware site design showrooms, mm-hmm. and which inspired the the exhibition architecture and. Um, he said something to the tune of it's how you know the irony of history that you know Willie Smith's career was ended by AIDS essentially, and um, you know the irony of history that the opening of a show was now ended, basically compromised by another disease. I think we all work in historically conservative disciplines. You could argue that all disciplines are conservative, but I think we work in particularly conservative ones. Um, and we're probably in the least polarized, we're, we're at, the, at the least conservative ends of that, right? So pinup oftentimes treats the same subject matter as AD, but the message is different. And AD is a very different message for a very different audience. Very true. So. There's overlap for that sure. You, you have yeah. pictures of the same project, but those the mood of those photographs is different. The way that it's described, the 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 talking points. Um, I'm particularly impressed with the Willie Smith show, specifically because I think the Cooper Hewitt and the Smithsonian is a particularly conservative institution, mm-hmm. and I don't think of it as as one that like really actually looks too far um, outside of the mainstream. And and also, like, look, I also love that the Smithsonian has, like, Julia Child's kitchen. I mean, like, that's, like, one of my favorite things in the world. Mm. But so, you know. Tiffany for, lamps. But, yeah. But, no, but, I know. But, I but they're, like, but, yeah, and they're, and they're, like, there's nothing that, that those are, they're things that unite us all, right? Like, we also all like water and, like, going to the beach and whatever. Um, Tiffany Labs. Uh, I hate 
water. <laughs> it's um, true. I it's do true. hate water. <laughs> but I do think I am impressed that you got it through. I'm impressed that anybody knew what you were talking about. I'm impressed that you raised money for it. And made for, a book. But, but for a designer that most people my age who lived, who grew up in New York, most of my friends do not know who it is. Mm. Like someone, it's this is not Elsa Scaparelli, who's like Marissa Berenson's grand, grandmother. Like this is like someone who's, um, you know, um, offspring died off, right? Like there's no, like that, this, this ended. Um, and, and you could say this life ended. There's no one. And even the participants of that life are not the same. They are different. They're not the same people they were, right? Um, it's sort of like baby boomer, like hippies that voted for Trump or something like that. Maybe not that extreme, but something like that. So, Alexandra, why Willie Smith now? There is definitely like a clear arc between what Willie Smith was doing in the 70s and 80s and what young designers are doing today. Um, and also, there's a huge reckoning happening in the fashion mm. world. You know, there was a movement in the 1970s towards diversification, equity. Black designers were starting to own their own businesses. And that all started to crumble in the late 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And there is a push back now um, within the industry to practice in the way that Willie Smith was championing. And I think that many young designers are utilizing a lot of the strategies that Willie Smith utilized in his own business. It became apparent once I started researching like mm. Willie Smith's life and work. The first thing that we did was put together like 500 quotes of his that we pulled from archival news articles and interviews. Was it interviews. like that, that like wall of quotes and cards that Joan Rivers has in her in I her wish. apartment? I mean, my entire office is covered with his quotes because we tried. What's your favorite? Um, I mean, I, I think that the catchphrase style over status is one of the things that has stuck with me the entire time. But when I first read style over status, I immediately thought of Telfar, not for you, for everyone. And, you know, then as we dug a little bit deeper and we found that Willie Smith did the first runway show with men's and women's collections, interchangeable, you know, with gender neutral clothing, I thought about like GMBH. And then we started to find out that Willie Smith was also asking people on the street to participate in the runway shows. He was inviting dancers, Wall Street bankers, people outside of the modeling community. And we thought about Eckhaus Lada. He loved a good novel. Yeah. So, so there are young designers who are truly pupils of Willie Smith and Willie Ware. Not all of them are aware of his work. Some of them are. But it's important to understand history and also why his work did not have a direct like through line to what's happening today. You know, there was a period of 30 years, essentially. Well, also, I think Willie Ware as a brand was not attractive to a publication like Vogue, which in the 80s was still, I think, the arbiter of style. And I think yeah. a lot of what we associate with fashion with the 80s and even 90s now mm -hmm. is kind of perpetuated through these images that have kind of burned themselves into everyone's consciousness yeah. from those years. So I think 
that's another huge reason why for sure Willyware is like kind of a forgotten brand. I mean, to Vogue, Willyware was a junior sportswear company. Yeah. Not they, to be taken seriously. No, they were Cute. advertising in paper magazine, not yeah. in Vogue. I mean, it's also a conscious decision. Absolutely. Of, yeah. We're in a very reflective mode right now, I think, you know, with like the current situation and all these things. I think about, like you, Raphael, or like Architecture at Large, Pinup started in 2006, which seems like a million years ago. <laughs> and I recently, uh, I mean, this is such a small gesture, but recently we put it on our Instagram that it was like Pinup, you know, established 2006. Actually, Telfar is established 2005, which is even crazier. Really? Yes. Um, but the, I put How that there. How old is Telfar? He's only 34 or 5. You started very young, but um, I didn't. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I've now in 2020, I look back on almost 15 years of doing pinup, right? And the 10 year anniversary felt almost a little bit premature to me because I felt like we hadn't achieved enough. And, you know, the success was kind of like fleeting and like, you know, and after 15 years, you actually look back on not just your own work, but also all the work that was produced during that time mm -hmm. and how like you've kind of been witness and to some extent also a platform to a lot of the cultural production that happened during that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what was out in 2006, 2007, as we all know, it was very different from what's being done now, even though, you know, to us, it feels like a continuum. And also thinking about our anniversary, how we're going to celebrate that. It's just like, oh, woohoo, you know, we've achieved mm -hmm. 15 years or to actually look back on the things that were in the magazine that we wrote about mm -hmm. and that we kind of highlighted, right? Because it's always kind of an act of curation to put together a magazine. So I think, and, and as I was doing that, kind of to identify that we've actually been through like at least two or three kind of design and architecture, Is I don't know. Phases? Phases, yeah. Phases, moods. Like shifts. Or Sh yeah, I think there's been massive shifts that... <clears throat> sure. that um, we've absorbed, but that we're not necessarily aware of. So I think this is a really interesting time to also look back and see like what were the first 20 years of, you know, we're in the third decade of this century now. And if anything, I think also, and this is great that we're doing this podcast is because it's also a way to kind of look and see like, what is, what is this moment right now? And I think also this should be the place where like we can talk about like you know the dominance of cream interiors on instagram and the rise of trump yeah oh, i think I mean, you know there's that, no reason for any of those things to be divorced from each that's other that's what i mean double macchiato brings the spiritual synthesis of espresso and cappuccino to an exploration of our contemporary cultural atmosphere exquisite taste potent thrills thank you for joining us was was that an espresso sound? Yeah, it was that was like a milk foam. 